am hitting record. This is Hadley Thorne with Weird Realities Podcast, a Nightcaller's production. Welcome to session six of the Weird Ink Sessions, where we speak with some of the world's most interesting authors, podcasters, and filmmakers about their current projects and research into the natural, preternatural, and supernatural worlds around us. So Vic Ferrari is with us today. Vic is a retired 20-year veteran of the NYPD and author of Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, the NYPD's Flying Circus, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, and Dickheads and Debauchery, and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. So hey Vic, is it true that you are into Italian cars, stereos, Australian films, and beautiful ladies? Uh, well, that, that sounds like, uh, that sounds like an app where you plugged in my <laughs> name, my author name and it, and it spit out those things. But Hadley, thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm flattered. Um, how, how are you enjoying this Sunday? It is a beautiful day down here in Mississippi. And I'm, I'm in, uh, central Florida on the West coast. Ah, uh-huh, so you're a snowbird now. Uh, I, well, I've been down here almost 15 years. Um, I did my 20, I grew up in New York city. Um, I lived in New York city my entire life. I did a 20 year career with the New York city police department, 10 years as a policeman. My last 10 as a detective assigned to the auto crime division, which I dealt with chop shops, stolen vehicles, stolen vehicles being exported out of the country, the mafia, um, uh, fraudulent identification, fraudulent means to obtain vehicles, anything with organized crime and vehicles. That was my um, my niche. I did that for my last 10 years of my career. I loved every minute of it. Um, I retired. I moved down to sunny Florida about 15 years ago. I became a cop down here. I did not like it. Uh, <laughs> I retired and I got into writing. And now, um, you know, people like yourself and, and radio station and podcast hosts have been nice enough to put me on their show to promote my books. Well, we're happy to have you. And I'm thrilled because everyone that knows me knows I have a special place in my heart for law enforcement officers in the military. So thank you for your service. And I'm super excited to find out some of the strange and interesting experiences that you've had. Ask away, Hadley. I'm, I'm an open book. Well, where did you get the idea for your dickheads and debauchery book? Because that was just kind of crazy. And I'm really interested to see what triggered that. Okay. So when I retired from the New York City Police Department, I always had, I always wanted to write something and I wasn't ready to write about my former career. I just, I just didn't think I could do it, but I do. I I love comedy. I enjoy comedy. And uh, I said, you know, I could write a book about the ridiculous things people do to shorten their lives be it walking around Disney World with a bitch beater, which is a turkey leg, or running with the bulls. People pay all sorts of money to go to Spain to run around and get gored by a bull, or just the ridiculous things people do to shorten their life expectancy. So I did a lot of research. I looked into you know different ways people get themselves killed. And I wrote a, co- a comedy about it. And there's a lot in there from my past, my childhood, and the ridiculous things my brother and I did you know, and I, I'm still shocked to this day that I'm still alive. Some of the things my brother and I did. Um, I just, the, the, the most difficult thing for me when I'm writing a book is the title. Um, my books are usually 95% done and I don't have a title. I just don't. It's, um, it's the same with me as writing a book, a book blurb about what the book is about 
or and about the author section for for whatever it is I struggle with that. Um, and I had I wanted to come up with a title that just kind of would shock you, grab your attention, and explain what the book is about. And dickheads and debauchery and other ingenious ways to die. I guess that gets its point across. Also, the company that was designing the book cover, I they didn't really understand it, and they said, "Well, what do you want?" And I said, "Well." can you put an overweight guy on a ladder in a wife beater, smoking a cigarette, drinking a beer, doing something dangerous with electricity? <laughs> and that's what they did. They put a fat guy with a, a ladder on top of cinder blocks on top of a picnic table, changing a light bulb. Yeah, that seems familiar. <laughs> <laughs> We've all done it. I think that guy's my neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, tell us... What are the most, I guess, interesting way, or not interesting, but this, what's the craziest way you've seen um, someone meet their end through your work? Oh, through the, through police work? Yeah. Oh, um, okay. So in, the New, in New York City, we have the New York City subway system, okay? And that's electric, but it's not overhead wires that powers the train. Where the wheels are, you have a rail, which is electrified, and it's the, it's called the third rail. It's on the if you ever go next time, if you're ever in New York City and you're in a subway station, look down. You'll see you'll see a rail, and it's covered by a wooden bar. Well, if you go down there and you touch that thing, you're going to get electrocuted. But in New York City, you have a lot of homeless people that live in the tunnels. Believe it or not, and every now and then. One of the, can, can we curse on this or? Yeah. Okay. So, so, well, so sometimes homeless people will piss on the third rail and get electrocuted. And what'll happen is the electricity will run up through the stream of urine and electricity will go right through their penis and the electricity has to come out somewhere. So sometimes it'll blow off their hands. Sometimes it'll blow off their penis, but I've seen people electrocuted pissing on the third rail. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> You weren't expecting that when you asked that no, question, I huh? Wasn't. I wasn't. Oh, you'd think they'd know better, but I guess not. So I guess I don't uh, know how many electrical engineers or electricians become homeless <laughs> and decide <laughs> to go into the New York City subway system, but I mean, they really should look into it before they get down there. Well, you know, um, in Mississippi, we have a lot of livestock. And that's one of the things is you'll have the um, electric fences and people here will pee on the electric fence. And I, I'm, I'm certain that something like that happens with them. But so we know not to, you know, touch a live wire like that. <laughs> but I guess um, that's similar. I've also seen burglars um, meet their end by what they'll try to do is go in through a chimney and what'll happen is they'll get wedged in there and they suffocate. I, I've seen that where they've had to take a chimney apart to take someone out that's, you know, asphyxiated. That's crazy. So I hear all kinds of weird stuff about New York and I'm just curious because you, you were there and you were very, you know, much on the job during the um, hor horrific events of, you know, nine one one, so or nine eleven. What was that like for you? Um, it's a funny story. I mean, if there's anything funny about it, uh, so that was on a Tuesday, and that day, my office was in the Bronx. I was a detective in organized crime, and on that particular day, that morning, I was scheduled. I came in at seven a.m. 
I was supposed to be out the door no later than eight. Um, my sergeant and I were going to drive into Manhattan and meet with a prosecutor and a defense attorney. A guy I had, I had arrested for um, changing VIN numbers on cars was going to cooperate. He was going to give up a chop shop operation and uh, illegal uh, phony driver's license. He was going to give up a lot of stuff. So we were going to have a meeting with his attorney and see if we can get him out of jail to be a snitch for us or a confidential informant. And um, I was in the office and I'm chomping at the bit to get out of the office by eight. And my sergeant comes walking through the door about 8.20. And his name was John. And I said, John, come on, we, we got to get down there. We're going to be late. He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And he was just taking his time. And um, by the time we were about to leave the building, um, one of the cops from downstairs came running up and said, put on the news, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. So we put on the news and we, we couldn't tell if it was like just a private plane or a Cessna that hit, we, you know, we didn't know. And then as we're watching it, the second plane hit. So we said, okay, we know it's terrorism. And they said, okay, nobody move, everybody get into uniform and just stand by. So obviously I wasn't gonna go down to court that day. Um, and probably by about 1.30 in the afternoon, my entire office was down there walking around um, the ground zero area. But the reality is had, we got down there early enough and those planes would have hit, we probably would have been down, you know, at the crash site and who knows? I mean, I could have gotten crushed like a lot of guys that I knew that were down there. So my sergeant being late to the office that day, I always tell him, I go, you saved our lives. He goes, yeah. He goes, there's a pretty good chance we would have gotten crushed. I said, I know, but um, it was surreal. We were walking around down there. We didn't know what to make heads or tails of it. By that, by the time that had happened, I had already had like 13 or 14 years in with the NYPD. So nothing really is going to shock you. And you learn how to compartmentalize your emotions. So I'm not going to say that um, it wasn't shocking. It certainly was. But it's not like any of us like lost our shit over it. We were like, okay, this is bad. We don't know how bad, but uh, we're going to be down here for the time being. So I guess I was down there at the crash site from about 1.30 in the afternoon we didn't go home till about five or six in the morning. And then they wanted us back the following day, um, about 5.30 PM. And then we were doing 12 hour shifts. And then they pulled us off that after about a week, then they bought, then they brought us back after a couple of weeks. Then we were on the, uh, the bucket brigade, which it's a line of people from, from ground zero with buckets of debris. And then those buckets get sorted through. And then it, it just, it got so out of hand. Then they started coming in with the heavy equipment and pulling things out and then putting it in trucks and then sending it out to uh, Staten Island where they had an abandoned landfill that they opened up. And uh, since I was in auto crime, they had us going through the, uh, there was hundreds of cars that were crushed. So they had us um, cutting these, um, these wrecks with the jaws of life and pulling the parts just to make sure that there wasn't anybody that died inside a car or to identify the vehicles. Cause a lot of people believe it or not, were putting in phony insurance claims, claiming their car yeah. was down there when it wasn't. Yeah. I remember um, there was a scandal with some lady that she said she had been in the world trade centers and she wasn't, she had been given awards and all kinds of stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. You had the lunatics down there. There were, there were people down there collecting money you had people impersonating, believe it or not, you had people down there impersonating, like the whole area was like wardened off, but you had people impersonating cops and firemen going down there and try to break into local businesses. You know, that's one of the things that, um, which you, and you don't know this about me, but I used to work in cybercrime. And it's one of the things that, 
you know, it never ceases to amaze me how fast criminals adapt to the changing circumstances and take advantage of um, horrific events. They, they just. Yeah. They're, they're waiting for an opening. They're waiting for an opening and they go for it. I mean, you're hundred percent right. It never ceases. And, and the thing is with a lot of these criminals, I mean, they could be very successful if they went into a legit business, but for whatever reason, they love taking those shortcuts. And, you know, I think for a lot of them, it's, it's, it's a game. It's the chase. I think they would be bored running a real company. You know what I mean? If they could do it, but they would be bored. It's, it's more fun to them to have the law over their shoulder. I'd never be able to live like that, but I mean, I guess that's why I had a 20 year career in law enforcement. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for, being there and doing all of that hard work because so many people couldn't do it. You know, it takes a special kind of person to work in law enforcement, I believe. And I think y'all are angels on earth. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So let's get back to your auto crime division. So tell me, let's just talk about some of the crazy stuff that you've encountered, things you've seen, some of the, the great people that you've come in contact with. Um, well, in New York City, in the early 90s, so I got hired by the NYPD in uh, 1987, the New York City Police Department or New York City was averaging over 250,000 stolen cars a year in the five boroughs. And so think about, was it, you know what, it's either 150,000 or 250,000. I, I don't want to give the wrong number, but it's up there. It was well over 100,000 stolen cars in the five boroughs. And New York City has 35,000 cops. So each borough, like Manhattan, the Bronx, Queens, they had um, auto, uh, auto larceny units that went out and ran plates and tried to lock up car thieves. And then you had the, uh, the auto crime division, which was a 120 man person unit that, uh, that basically we went after the big stuff. Yeah, we would go after someone driving a stolen car, but we try to get to the root of the problem. Where are the cars going? You know, are they being chopped? Are they being burned for insurance? Um, you know, are they being ex exported out of the country? And the answer is yes, all of them. And uh, that's what we did. We did cases on stolen vehicles, uh, heavy equipment, uh, construction equipment, insurance fraud, where, you know, someone that's got a vehicle that they can't make the car payment or their kid threw up in the car and they think they're going to get thumped when they return the car on its lease. Um, so they go and, you know, 50 cents worth of gas and they burn it or they take it to a chop shop or they leave it in a parking garage. And then they're compensated after 30 days after an insurance company, you know, compensates them for the loss of their car. And then they get on with their life. So we looked into those sort of things and, and we made arrests and we brought a dent in it because by the time I retired in 2007, I mean, I think it was down to like 15 or 20,000 stolen cars a year, which I mean, you're talking, you know, more than a hundred percent, well, not a hundred percent, but probably 90%. Hello? I'm oh, sorry. Oh. I was just waiting for you to finish up. Oh no, I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> no. Um, so what is the, uh, just tell us a little bit about what's in your books. Uh, what, what do you talk about and what, where do you get your creative force behind what you write? All right. So I'll, I'll go backwards. So Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division, that book is loaded with stories of the insurance, uh, um, the insurance, the, uh, the world of auto theft. 
who, what, where, when, why. There's stories about um, uh, the book opens up where we did a, a search warrant in a chop shop out in Queens. And we're in this mobster's office and my partner finds a hand grenade in a shoebox. Now, my old partner is a great guy, but he was a cook in the military. And he's like, oh, yeah, this is a pineapple grenade from the Vietnam era. I'm like, would you put that down? Nah, you know, don't worry about it. The pin's still in it. And he's walking around the office with a hand grenade. We don't know how old this thing is. And he's going out the back door. And I go, what are you going to do with it? He goes, I'm going to pull the pin and throw it in Jamaica Bay. Now, as crazy as that sound, that whole neighborhood was run by the mafia. I'm sure they've heard explosions and gunshots before. Just people were too afraid to call the police. But I said, you know, instead of doing that, why don't you put, I was like talking to a child, I go, why don't you put the hand grenade back in the shoebox? We'll call the bomb squad. They'll come with all their toys. They'll take it out of here and we'll make more overtime watching the bomb squad come and, and play with this hand grenade. He goes, that's a great idea. So we go to my lieutenant. We tell him we found a, a hand grenade in the office. He goes, all right, get everybody out of here. He coordinates it. Well, the next thing you know, there's helicopters, the news media is coming. I go, oh, shit, what did we just start with this? I mean, my old partner's walking around with a hand grenade, and now we've got, like, the cavalry on its way. So um, that's what wound up happening. The, the uh, bomb squad came. The guy shows up in that big, uh, that big green suit with the uh, – he looks like an oddbark um, in, in those uh, bomb suits. He looks like he's going to walk on the surface of the moon. And uh, he came out, put it in a box, and then they took it out to uh, – Rodman's neck, which is where our bomb squad is, and they detonated it. And yeah, it was live. Um, so there's stories like that and that us hitting chop shops. Um, some of these gangsters were funny. I mean, you know, they'd kill you in a heartbeat, but they were actually pretty funny and had a good sense of humor. Um, there's just the stories in Grand Theft Auto about how to protect yourself from car thieves. Um, I, I go into, you know, how to protect yourself from a car thief, how to protect your car. I also go into, I have a chapter about what to look for when you're buying a car that you don't buy a salvage vehicle or um, a car that's been had the VIN number changed or a lemon because um, there's so many tricks. And I know there's things like Carfax out there and stuff, but if you don't really know what you're looking at with Carfax or Equifax, um, you say, oh, the car's good, but it, it might not be good. So I explain what to look for when you're looking to buy a stall, uh, when you're looking to buy a used car. So would you advise any of our listeners to get an um, auction car from the police? Uh, it's going to be beat to hell. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> those cars run basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, no, well, you know what? The NYPD is like that. In smaller police departments, I understand they take the cars home. So I wouldn't buy a car from a large police department like New York City because those cars are like cabs. They're just running 24 hours, 24 hours, 24 hours for, for months until the wheels fall off. Uh, a department like a sheriff's office or something where the deputies are taking the vehicles home. Yeah, I would think that's safe because the car's only being used 8, 12 hours a day. But keep in mind, um, it's going to have a lot of miles on it. Um, it, you know, it is what it is. You'll get a good deal, but I don't know how reliable it would be. Okay. So what's the most interesting story that you've personally experienced when you were on the job? Oh, I've got many. I mean, I, I, uh, I could, what do you want to hear? You want to hear funny? You want to hear interesting? You want to hear dark? All right, I'll tell you the Hansel and Gretel story. This one wasn't actually me. This is my old partner, but it, it's a fascinating story. So in the early 90s, 
you know, we're all in our early 20s and, you know, going to work and then we're going to the bars and we're meeting girls and we're all in our early 20s. And there's cops from different precincts going to these cop bars. And uh, my old partner, before he worked with me, worked with a guy that was an amateur magician. And he was a nice enough guy, but he was a really lazy cop. And we'd be at the bar talking to girls and then he'd come over and he starts pulling flowers out of his sleeve and pulling gold coins from behind girls' ears. And as funny as it was when you've seen the trick a million and one times and I grabbed my old partner aside and I said, you got to tell him to stop. He's cock blocking us with magic. So he <laughs> laughed and he says, I wish he took his NYPD career as seriously as he does his magician career. So anyway, one mi- on a midnight, my old partner and the magician get called to a basement apartment in the Bronx. And this is before the 911 system would narrow it down to an apartment. All it said was 911 calls for help in the basement. So they go into this basement and in these, in New York city, you have these buildings that have these basements where there's several apartments and they're usually for the superintendent of the building and the superintendent of the building lives in these buildings. He, he lives rent free, but he's in charge of keeping the boiler running. He's in charge. Anything that goes wrong with the building, the maintenance, he's the guy. So there's two apartments down in the basement. They don't know which one called for help. So they go to door number one and they're banging on the door. No one comes to the door. So my old partner, we used to call him cancer because he killed more people than cancer. And I'll get to that later. He's a curious cop. He goes to bang on door number two. When he goes to bang on door number two with his nightstick, the magician tells him, eh, come on, let's get out of here. No one called 911. We made all that noise down here with our radios and banging on the door. If anybody was in that apartment, they would have come out. So my partner goes, all right, I guess you're right. He goes, come on, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. And they leave. Okay. But what they didn't know was behind door number two, the super of the building was selling Coke out of his apartment. And he had fallen behind on his, uh, his payments to his wholesaler. So what happened was in the drug world, when you fall behind on your, you know, your drug payments, you know, they don't send you like warning notices. We're going to, you know, we're going to cut you off or something or friendly reminders. What they did was to get into the apartment, these two hit men showed up with an attractive female. It's an old gypsy trick. They knocked on the super's door. He looks out the, he looks out the peephole. He sees a beautiful woman. So he thinks she's there to buy drugs. He opens the door the two hitmen push their way into the apartment. They start pistol whipping him, demanding where the money is. Well, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have the money. He doesn't have the answers. So they shoot him in the head. They roll him up in a carpet and they take him out of the apartment and they throw him in the furnace. So while he's burning up like a Puerto Rican fire log, they go back into the apartment and they're ransacking it where my old partner and the magician show up. So now they're standing outside and the two hitmen tell the female if these cops knock on this door, this is what we're going to do. You let them in and start talking to them in Yugoslavian. They're not going to know what you're talking about. Keep pointing to the kitchen and walk them past this bedroom door. Once you walk past the bedroom door with the cops following you, you jump down on the floor. We'll come out. We'll shoot the two cops in the head. We'll roll them up in another rug and we'll throw them in the furnace with the other guy and we'll be on our way. So she's all for it, but they never knock on the door. So when my my old partner and magician left the apartment, there was a a car outside parked on the fire hydrant. That was their getaway car. So as luck would have it, they write the getaway car, a parking ticket. Well, yada, yada, yada. A week later, the super's family doesn't know what happened to him. He's gone. The apartment's been ransacked. The detectives get involved. 
They see that there was a calls for help a week earlier and that my partner and the magician showed up. So they start asking them questions and they said, yeah, we, it's funny you should say that we gave a ticket outside. Well, the car belonged to the female. They were able to get her through the parking ticket and then she spilled her, she spilled the beans on everybody trying to minimize her part in it. But then they were able to round up the two hitmen. And the funny thing is it was the dead of winter. It was like February. So they had to shut the, the, uh, the the uh, the furnace off to the building and let it cool off to get the um, the bones and the skull of the um, oh the gosh. superintendent that was inside the building. So that's a story from my book NYPD through the looking glass stories from inside America's largest police department. That is crazy. So um, your your partner, you said that he he had um, killed as many people as cancer. We used to call him cancer. Yeah, he had been in a couple of gun battles and he always came out on top. He was going home from work one day and uh, he had done a midnight and he was going home and these guys had robbed a check cash in place and there was a car chase that was going up the Bronx River Parkway. And my old partner just so happened to be on the Bronx River Parkway and he saw this caravan of police cars chasing this Lincoln Town car roar past. So he's, you know, he got involved in the chase and the chase went up to uh, the Westchester County Medical Center and... The bad guys, either I don't know what happened. They crashed their car or they ran out of gas or their car broke down. Anyway, you got a gun battle going and you have the bad guy's car facing one way. You got the cops facing another and the bad guys got their doors open. Cops got their doors open and they're shooting over the hoods of their, you know, they're shooting over the doors of their car. So my old partner flanked them to the side and was like watching it like a play. Like he's standing there watching the bad guys focusing on the uniform cop shooting it out. And he's like in, like in the stands, like watching it for a play. So all he had was a five shot 38. And um, he took, he explained it to me. He said, I says, were you nervous? He goes, yeah. He goes, I had no cover. He goes, so the first shot he took went, went high, but it got one of the gunmen's attention. He turned and then he started shooting at my old partner. The second shot my partner got off hit the guy in the armpit. So he said he heard the guy scream, but the, he goes, the guy didn't drop the gun and he was still trying to shoot at me. He goes, the third shot he got off, he, he hit him in the top of the head and he says the top of his head come off like a tomato. He goes, it looked like a tomato exploding. So he says, after he you know killed that guy, the other guy gave up. So they were able to, you know, one guy got arrested. The other guy was DOA. I don't know if there were three of them, but I, I, I definitely know there were two. Um, and then he was involved in something else before I worked with him. So he was just one of those guys. There was a couple of guys like that, that I work with that. They just, it found him. It just, it found him. And when I say it, I mean, just, you know, deep, dark shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Well, sounds like you're not one of those people though. That's good. Oh, it found me too. I mean, I, I was lucky enough that I didn't kill somebody, but I was involved in, I was involved in probably hundreds of car chases. I mean, you know, wrestling with people with guns, people pulling out guns, fighting with people with knives. And, oh no, I've just been lucky enough that I never had to take someone's life. And that's not what I ever aspired to do. And I'm glad I didn't have to, but uh, no, no. Um, I, I was involved in more of my fair share of, you know, dangerous situations. It's just, I was just lucky enough that I didn't have to take someone's life. So I'm curious, um, you said that you've been in some car chases. Were you driving? Yeah, uh, a lot. Of, um, probably about 50% of the time. I like to sit, uh, we had computer cars. So there was like a, 
we used to call it a cash register. It was, it was a, a screen with a keyboard and we would run plates. And if something came back stolen, then what we would do is we had unmarked cars that didn't look like police cars. They looked like taxis or all sorts of things or, or vans. And we would just sit back and we would follow a stolen car, see where it went. You know, if, if we would, you know, if it was going to a chop shop or something, we would try to get a search warrant if it went into a, um, a garage or a location. If we thought that they were just joyriding, what we would do is we would sit back and you try to get them in traffic. So there's so much traffic in New York City. So what we would do is we would put it over the air that we're following a car and we would try to get them blocked in traffic. And then what we would do is we'd slide up behind them and just give them a light tap just a light tap to, you know, when, when they would turn around, we're coming out of the car, but they've got nowhere to go because there's a car in front of them. And then just, you know, pull them out of the car. And if the doors were locked, you break the glass and pull them out of the car. Well, Vic, I have, I'll have to tell you this. Um, my favorite are the canine cops. So what's your favorite canine cop takedown that you've witnessed? I, you know, in New York City, Canine, uh, it's a specialized unit. It's usually not at the precinct level. Like I know like the sheriff's office and stuff, they have them on patrol. In New York, they use the canines more for a homicide or something, you know, um, where the bad guy they think is in in the area. They have bloodhounds. They'll bring out bloodhounds. But New York is so densely populated and there's so many people around that a lot of times those bloodhounds just they're chasing their own tail. It's not like, you know, they're near a prison where there's nothing around. There's just so many scents and smells. Um, and I worked in narcotics for a couple of years. Um, we used uh, the dogs. If we couldn't find something in an apartment, like we knew that, you know, you know, there's drugs in the apartment, but we can't find them. And these guys are ingenious, hollowing things out. Or one time um, we were in an apartment, we tore this place apart. We could not find a damn thing. And there was a chair one of the guys was sitting on and the dog ran over the chair and started barking. Wouldn't you know it, we found a couple ounces of heroin that was secreted inside. There was a uh, secret compartment or a trap built into the chair. But I mean, we had ripped that apartment apart and there was no, we couldn't find it. We we're like, maybe they sold it. Maybe it's not here. But the dog, the dog ran up and scared the shit out of one of the detectives sitting on the chair. And uh, <laughs> we started looking at the chair. We said, oh, wait a minute. That's why is this? It had a false bottom into the bottom of the chair. The dogs know. Um, yeah, but we just didn't have much luck with them in New York. It's we have them, but it, they, they're not used as much as smaller police departments. I guess that makes it. I've never been to New York, so I cannot under, understand like how large it is compared to what I'm, you know, because it, it doesn't compare to New Orleans. It doesn't compare to Memphis. It's so much larger. No, New York City in the five boroughs. Um, you have not over nine. No, wait. I think just Manhattan, you have nine million. Yeah, that's, that's you know, crazy. you know what I mean. I think it's nine, 14 million people in there. You know, I mean, it's um, that's like more than my entire state. <laughs> well, think about it. Like, it, I think we had over 40,000 cops in the 90s. I think it's down to 35,000 now. But yeah. think of it this way in New York City, you have 77 police stations. Wow. So at each police station has anywhere like the smaller ones in Staten Island, because there's only three out in Staten Island. Maybe they have 100 guys each, but like the bigger precincts like in Manhattan, you got over 300 guys. It's crazy. That's a lot. Yeah, it's, it, it's, a lot it's, it's larger than a lot of countries' armies, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, it is. 
I guess I'm going to have to go one day. Um, I'd wait till things get cha changed or clean up. I wouldn't go there right now. It's a dangerous no, no, place. Not right now. Not right now. Um, yeah, I figure I won't be traveling for probably a couple of years until we all get little spacesuits to wear. I just got my second shot. It's so funny you should say that. I just got my second shot last week and I haven't been to the gym. I mean, I still keep in shape. I do push-ups, and I, you know, I still work out around the house, but I got into the gym today for the first time. It felt great. So I'm hoping that second shot, you know, protects me. Well, I think the first shot will protect like 70%. And then the, with the second shot, it goes up to 90. So you're, you're good. You're good. I hope so. I'm just, it's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't, if you don't get the vaccine, you know, you could get sick and end up in the hospital. If you get the vaccine six months from now, you could have a biohazard, you know, symbol in your eyeball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, there's no rhyme or reason to it. I mean, a very good friend of mine, I went to high school with, I worked with, and just one of these guys, he was in the gym all the time, not overweight. Um, no pre-existing uh, conditions that I knew of or most of you know, his friends knew of. And um, he got COVID just a couple of months ago and he was, you know, he was dead in a week. And we're oh, like, God. how is that even possible? I mean, he just, and he was a germaphobe. That's the best part about it. I mean, he was one of these guys, we used to break his balls all the time. He was in his hand sanitizer before there was hand sanitizer. You know what I mean? Like he was always one of these guys washing his hands and so I, I, I think a lot of that, I mean, and I, I, I'm staying, I'm getting out of my lane, but I think a lot of that has to do with your blood type. I really do. Is it um, a positive people that are having the, the worst reactions? Oh, I don't, you know, that's a good question. I don't know that. I don't know that to be true, but I, I think it's, some, I think some people with some blood types are more, um, it crushes them. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. um, it just gets them really bad, unfortunately. Well, it's some scary stuff for sure. Um, like I said, I, I just, I worked in healthcare for so long that I know enough to be scared either way. <laughs> so I, um, I will be getting my vaccine hopefully in the next couple of weeks though. So I'll tell you what, Florida, I mean, it, it, I made an appointment and the following week I was going and then, you know, they scheduled for me for three weeks later and I mean, I was in and out in a half hour. I mean, and they make you wait 15 minutes just to make sure that, you know, you don't have a side effect. But uh, it, uh, down here in Florida, it, everything is running smooth. You wouldn't know there's a pandemic down here, really. I mean, he opened the place up and you, you wouldn't know it. That's pretty much how it is here. Um, you, you'll go out, you'll see some people wearing masks and some people don't. It's, it seems like it's a personal choice, but... Yeah, I mean, the um, sunshine helps and the warmer weather helps where I think that um, some of the cities and um, states where it's colder have had, you know, a harder time. Well, more people huddle together. Yeah, inside. And, you know, I don't know where you live in Florida. You said Central Florida. Well, I live in yeah, Central the city, so we're probably somewhat weather the same. But, you know, it's... A lot of people spend a lot of times outdoors here. So hunting, fishing, that sort of thing, working in your yard. So. Yeah, I mean, I mean, 
nobody knew, I mean, what this thing was. I mean, I like everybody else. I, and I have a large dog. I got an Irish wolfhound. And I mean, he's got to get walked. I mean, even if I let him out in the backyard, he lets me know, no, that's not enough. And um, I had to walk him. And I remember early with COVID, I like, I wasn't wearing a mask walking about outside, but like I'd see somebody da walking down the street and I'd cross the street. I mean, you, you just didn't know what it was. You know what I mean? It was like something out of a Stephen King movie. Like we're all going to die. Like, what is this thing that's just, you know, tearing through major U.S. cities? And then, you know, it's like anything else. It's human nature. Well, he didn't die. And this one seems OK. And you know what? You, you, you start coming out of your shell a little bit at a time. Well, I know, like, I've been prepared for the zombie apocalypse since the 80s. So, you know, I, I was very cautious when it all started working in healthcare. We've done flu clinics. You know, we, the flu kills so many people each year. You know, we were, we knew what to look for. And with friends and um, I have a good friend of mine is a infectious disease professional. And she went from ground zero at Atlanta some of the hospitals there to um, Maine and that's where she's been throughout working and um, you know she's fine she she hasn't been sick she told me that the number one thing to look for they were doing at the hospital in Atlanta was smelling a sharpie every day because the first thing to go is your sense of smell so I've got my sharpie <laughs> that's interesting that that's a really that's a good point that that's I didn't that's I wouldn't have thought of that that's a really good idea yeah, and she said that that's, you know, what if you weren't able to smell, they'd send you, you know, off. But she's she's done real well, like I said. Um, but I always, I always lined up with her for, for talk about what's going on, what should I take serious, what should I not, so. All right, so you want to hear fun? All right, I just thought of one. So you want to hear a funny story? Of course. Okay, so... There was a guy that we used to work with and we used to call him El Diablo, the devil. And well, the Spanish cops used to call him that. He was, he was an Irishman. And he was just one of these guys. He loved that big drinker, loved to have a good time, was a lot of fun, but he was just one of these guys. Trouble followed him everywhere. And the more he drank, the wilder he got. And it just, we used to say, this guy must have the Prince of Darkness uh, running interference for him because he never got in trouble. I mean, all the shit this guy pulled in his career, I mean, nothing criminal, but just wild shit and nothing came back to haunt him. So this, this is a story from uh, the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime and Chaos. El Diablo is in a midtown um, bar having a couple of cocktails with a couple of women that he doesn't know and he's just shooting the shit with them and it's right over by Central Park. So if you ever watch the movies, um, you have those horse and carriages that mm -hmm. go around Central Park and those guys wear the long overcoats and the top hats. So one of the, what they call Hanson, Hanson cab operators. So one of the Hanson cab operators walks into the bar, takes off his top hat, he's heading towards the bathroom. So this guy, El Diablo says, hey, do you mind if I take secretariat out for a ride? So he goes, yeah, yeah, sure, right? So El Diablo tells the two women at the bar, come on, we're gonna go for a ride. So they go, what are you talking about? He goes, nah, he's an old friend of mine, which he wasn't. <laughs> so El Diablo loads these two women into the horse and carriage, right? And he takes the whip. He starts tapping the horse and um, the horse starts going. And those horses, you know, they 
I mean, you people, you you know, my this audience is in Mississippi. You guys know horses more than people would in New York City. I mean, horses know the route, and horses know when there's a jackass on top of them or pulling the the ride, right? right. Well, the horse quickly figures out that El Diablo is not, you know, an equestrian. So the horse starts going through red lights. And now the women in the back seat of the horse and carriage are like, hey, what the hell is going on? The horse is starting to pick up speed. And now El Diablo can't stop the horse and carriage. Well, the horse and carriage takes off for Central Park. It wants to cut through Central Park to get to the, get uh, on the other side of Central Park on the west side. You have the stables. So the horse figures, I'm going home for the night and eating. The horse takes off and, and now is going through lights. It's, it's just doing whatever it wants. And El Diablo can't stop the horse and carriage with these two women in it. So two other Hanson cab operators say, you know, hey, wait a minute. Isn't that Joey's horse and carriage? Why is this jackass? <laughs> right. They chase it. So now you've got three horse and carriages roaring through Central Park. OK, like Ben Hur. And the two other horse and carriages get in front of him and block him and slow him down. The two women are screaming at the top of their lungs. They jump out of the horse and carriage and they take off into the night into Central Park. The, the, um, they, they call their buddy. He shows up. He wants him arrested. El Diablo says, no, 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 you don't want to do this. I don't want to get in any trouble. He goes to a cash machine and takes out 500 bucks, pays the handsome cab operator and never gets in trouble. So you got, a, you got, so you got an NYPD. He was actually a lieutenant, steals a horse and carriage, goes through Central Park in a, in a wild chase. And the two women vanish into the night. He goes to an ATM machine, gives the guy 500 bucks, and it goes away. So that's a story from the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. There's just stories in there with guys I worked with that just would get themselves in these ridiculous situations. I love that. That's hilarious. So the NYPD's Flying Circus. So tell me some a story about the mom. We, that's, you know... That's, we see that on TV all the time. And... Yeah, um, they're, they're out there. It's not like it was. Um, when I first got hired, they were in their heyday. Um, there were some big cases going on, but they still, I mean, they controlled construction. You couldn't put a building up without them controlling the price of the concrete. You couldn't, um, so, so the mafia works like this. They get into the unions, okay? So they'll, They'll have their guy in there and that guy gets elected union delegate and they run a union. So when mafia guys are getting out of jail, it's like anything else. When you get out of jail, you got to have, and you're on probation or parole, you got to show that you're working. So what they'll do is if you watch the Sopranos, it pretty much spells out how it gets done. So what they'll do is they'll have two types of things at a construction site, uh, a no show job or a no work job. No work means you show up to work every day, you get a check and you don't have to do a thing. You're just hanging out. And if somebody gets out of line or pisses off the delegate, you punch them in the mouth or knock out their teeth. Um, a no show job means you have a check that goes there every two weeks and you show up and you pick it up and you show that W-2 to your parole or probation officer and it appears that you have a job. Reality is you're still working for the mafia, but on record, it looks like you're working for a construction company or, or you're working for a union. So that, that's, that's one of the ways they made their bread and butter and you know, infiltrated unions and, and controlled construction in New York. Another thing with the mafia they controlled was 
um, private sanitation. So if you, if you own a house or you live in an apartment building, the New York City Department of Sanitation picks up your garbage. But if you own a business, say you own a, um, I don't know, anything in Manhattan, any type of business, um, private sanitation comes once or twice a week and takes your cardboard or whatever you put out to the curb. What the mafia does is they own half the construction, uh, half, well, they did, they own half the sanitation companies and the ones that didn't they control the bids. And it, it was like, okay, you're going to go here and you're going to pick up this garbage. And then if you owned a business and you said, I'm not doing that, why, why would I, why would I pay you guys $300 a month to take some cardboard? Well, if you don't do it, we're going to throw a brick through your window. And if the brick through the window doesn't get our point across, then maybe one day when you show, when you're closing up one day, you're going to get hit with a bat. And it would just escalate to the point where you finally give in. It's worth paying $300 than not having to look over your shoulder. Yeah. They, well, it sounds like you've got a lot of just incredible experience here to make you a subject matter expert is what we would call you. Um, are you looking at taking any of your experience and writing any maybe fiction books based on some of your life experience? I, I could. I'm not there yet because I just have so many stories that, you know, that, that I can put in, in my books. Um, because, I mean, I change things around in my books. I change um, locations, dates, times ranks. I might put a character that I worked with from one story in a character with another one. I mean, some of them, I, most of my stories, I mean, there's some truth to them. You know what I mean? It's And, and these people really existed, but I move them around because I don't want to embarrass anybody. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. I don't want to get anybody divorced. I don't want to get anybody fired. So I, my books, I, I protect people as far as you're not going to know who it is. Now, some of the people I work with, it's funny, my friends, I'll write a book. And usually within a month after one of my books come out, I start getting phone calls. I know who you're talking about, you know, or <laughs> I know what that is. And, oh, I remember that. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's not lost on my friends and guys I worked with, but I, I do it to, I don't want to embarrass anybody. You know, like I, I call, I call my books, tell all and the stories, you know, there's a lot of truth to them, but I'm not exposing anybody. Oh, I think that's great. But I do think that you have some really good um, fodder here for some, some creative work as well. Um, even a screenplay. I mean, so, well, I'd, I'd pay money to see some of these. Yeah, I'm just waiting for to be discovered. I mean, <laughs> my, book, my books are just, it's funny. I hate writing in chronological order. And I never took, you know, um, a journalism class or creative writing class. Um, but I did write quite a bit in my NYPD career, writing reports and stuff. So my books, I mean, you can pick up if, if my books are perfect. If you're traveling, if you're getting on a plane, it, there's no beginning, middle end. They're just, they're just short stories. Each chapter has five or six short stories that are just like El Diablo or, and I give my guys nicknames like roast, there's roast beef, Ray, there's Bobby bagels. There's Butterball Bobby. I mean, and, and all these guys really existed. I'm just changing your names. But, um, you know, One Way Ray was another guy. He, he never cut anybody a break. He was all for himself. Um, you know, it, it's you could pick up the book and just there's just stories. It's it, it's you know, it's um, no central plot. It's just short stories. It's 250 
pages of short stories about the ridiculous things that happen in the New York City Police Department. And it does shed a lot of insight of how the department works, the department's mindset. I get a lot of feedback from retired cops from other police departments that said, I had no idea it was so difficult to be an NYPD cop. And I'm like, it, 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 it is. It's like something that the game, it's, you know, like it, the Game of Thrones is amateur for the amount of pitfalls there are with the New York City Police Department. Yeah, definitely. So the name of our show uh, is Weird Realities, as you know, and I guess before we go today, um, the last question I have for you is um, what is the strangest head scratching incident that you ever witnessed that you just don't know what happened? Oh, I can give you that. I, I've got a bunch, but um, one right off the bat. So 1989, um, I had like two years in, my partner and I, he was green too. He like had a year on too. And we were just driving around and in the uh, Pelham Bay section of the Bronx, right off of I-95, uh, uh, New England corridor, the fire department is coming back from a fire and they spot this little Toyota Corolla um, on the side of the road on fire. So they're coming from one, they, you know, they're leaving one fire. They see this little car parked off to the side of the road. It was right in front of um, Pelham Bay dump and it's on fire. So we see them come over and they got the hose going. It's an interior fire. They're blowing, they're, you know, putting the fire out. So we just pulled over just to see if they needed a hand or anything. And they're taking the license plates off the car because it's, it's, it's burned up pretty bad. And they popped the trunk with a crowbar and there's two guys in the trunk and um, they're, they're duct taped or handcuffed. I forget their mouths are covered. One guy's still alive. He's blinking. The other guy was dead and they're shot in the head multiple times with a small caliber bullet. So we start taking them out of the trunk and like um, the other guy died. One guy was dead when we got there. The other guy, the one that was blinking, he was dead. And they were shot in the head with probably 22s or 25s. But I mean, the thing is the shell casings were there at the scene. So, Whoever did that, they were alive for that car ride over to the dump. And then someone opened the trunk, shot them in the head multiple times, closed the trunk and started interior fire. And the funny thing is my old partner um, worked in Bronx homicide for 20 years. And I always asked him about that. And he goes, oh, I'm so busy because he was working on serial killers and stuff. But um, that one always aided me. I mean, it was a homicide from the summer of 1989. I don't know what happened with it. I don't know if I solved it, if, if they solved it. Um, but, um, yeah, that one I would say haunts me because I, I was relatively new in my career and I had never seen anything like that before. Like I'd seen DOAs, but, um, that one was, was wild. Oh, that sounds terrifying I mean, for the guys. And, well, and for the, them. Yeah. I mean, you uh, know, it's crazy. All right. Well, that's going to be, um, our 60 minutes are about up and, where can our um, viewers and listeners find you around on social media? Um, if on, on Twitter, I'm at VicFerrari50. Um, I have a Facebook page. Just look up author Vic Ferrari. Um, on my, I have an Amazon uh, author page. So if you look up any of my books, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, or NYPD Through the Looking Glass, stories from inside America's Police Department, um, my picture, my, my books will come up. Uh, I try to, I try to keep the price low. Um, the two ninety nine ebook download and $10 for a paperback. It's not a bad deal. Uh, I know a lot of authors charge a lot more, but 
I try to keep the price point uh, affordable for everybody. I got a new book coming out probably in the next month called NYPD Law and Disorder. And uh, that focuses more on the court system and the ridiculous cases that I had to deal with with the New York City Police Department. You want to give us a sneak peek? What's what's a crazy story from it? Uh, <laughs> uh, a crazy story from NYPD Law and Disorder. You kind of threw me a curveball. And I just <laughs> fin- I ju- I'm just doing the editing with that going back and forth with a copy editor. Um, Okay, uh, I lock up these four guys. I pull over a cab in the Bronx, and there's four kilos of cocaine in, in the back seat. I lock these guys up. I'm on top of the world. I'm parading around the station house like I won the Stanley Cup with four kilos of coke. I go down to the courthouse to draw up the arrests, and I have a district attorney. Now, back then, the NYPD did, we didn't field t- test drugs. Anytime we came up with drugs, you filled out a request for lab analysis and you sent it off to the lab. They didn't have those field test strips for us to use back then. So we didn't do it. So that night I'm meeting with a district attorney and she's telling me, um, so how do you know that it was cocaine? I go, well, by the packaging, it had a brand name on it. Two detectives from the narcotics division recognized the brand name on it. Um, but nobody wanted the kilos of Coke. They were passing around the backseat of the cab like a hot potato. I go, it's four kilos of Coke. She goes, well, couldn't you poke a hole in it? And I said, what? I said, what are you kidding me? I go, what would I poke a hole in a kilo of Coke with? She goes, perhaps a straw. And I was like, hey, lady, I says, I'm not fucking around with 10 pounds of Coke. I mean, are you kidding me? I said, I'm not looking to lose my job. That goes down to the lab. I mean, can you imagine sitting there trying to poke a hole? It's not Miami Vice. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a lot different than you see on TV. Everything is regulated. They're really up your ass. They don't want you messing around with drugs. They just don't. It goes to the lab. So um, I had to go over ahead. I asked to speak to a supervisor, which it's a bold move because whenever you go over someone's head, especially if you're going to have to work with them at some point or another down the road, it's a bold move, but I had to do it because she was going to throw my case out. And I'm like, she's looking to throw out, you know, 10, 10 pounds of Coke because I didn't poke a hole in it. I mean, you can't wait a couple of days for the lab, but it, it's stories like that. Interesting. I'm a big law and order fan, so I can't wait to get a hold of that book. <laughs> oh, you watch the show law and order. Yes. Well, the funny thing is, okay, so this is a funny story. So they filmed that in uh, in Lower Manhattan by the courthouse. So we would see them all the time um, on their lunch breaks and stuff. And like Sam Waterson, do you remember him? Yes. He's tall. Like he walked past me one day and I couldn't, I mean, I'm not a tall man. I'm only like five, nine and a half, but he's like six, three or something. He just walked, I was like, holy shit. I had no idea he was that tall. This is um, actually in... Um, NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos, there's a chapter called Rubbing Elbows. And it's about all the celebrities I ran into and just how they were and how they treated me and what I thought of them. And I, I've run into quite a few famous people. And some of the stories are pretty funny. Okay, so give me a lemon. Who's somebody that you met that was a total lemon? That I didn't care for? No, they just had a you know, nasty personality. Uh, Bill O'Reilly. Um, I was working the U S open. I was in a suit and tie, the tennis matches. And there was this young kid and, uh, he worked for the, you know, he worked for the U S open. He was an usher and I was standing right there and he walked Mr. O'Reilly over to his seat and he said, you know, listen, um, my dad's a big fan. I'm a huge fan. We just wanted to say thank you for, you know, we love your show. And he goes, Oh, really? 
And I said, come I'm, I'm saying to myself, I'm like, come on, you just crushed this kid. I couldn't, you just said, thank you so much. He wasn't asking you for an autograph. He wasn't asking you, you know, but you know, I guess everybody's got a bad day. Okay. So who's the, who's the nicest person that you've met? That's Julianne Moore. Really? Yeah. She was a sweetheart. She came out of a trailer. We were waiting for her and she's like, who wants a picture? And I was like, what are you kidding me? We was taking pictures with her and oh, she was a doll. Really nice. Kevin Bacon was a nice guy too. We scared the shit out of him. He was, um, he was walking to lower Manhattan and he, he had long oily hair and he was wearing wraparound sunglasses. I didn't recognize him. My partner did. And we're betting. We're following him with a car. And he goes, that's Kevin Bacon. I go, that ain't Kevin Bacon. He goes, it's Kevin Bacon. And just as Kevin Bacon was going to step off into the street, we cut in front of him with a Jeep. And uh, I go, how you doing, Mr. Bacon? And he leaned into the car. He saw the police radio. He goes, are you guys cops? I said, yeah. I said, I was just watching Mystic River last night. And my partner goes, there goes Kevin Bacon. He goes, yeah. And nice guy. Like we were just shooting the shit with him for a couple of minutes. Nice. I always like to hear about people not being jerks. So. No, he was a gentleman. Really nice guy. Nice to hear. Well, that's going to do it for us today, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's show and our visit with Mr. Vic Ferrari. We have some great Weird Ink sessions scheduled for the upcoming week, so be sure to hit like, subscribe, and follow us so you can get a notification when we drop our new content. On behalf of Weird Realities, I would like to invite you to join us at the end of each month when the Weird Realities team gets together to discuss all the weird things we've been reading, learning, and doing. Until next time, know that the team here at Weird Realities appreciate your support. Stay up to date on all our stuff via Linktree Weird Realities. Till next time, stay weird.